It's episode 51 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the show, a special guest, designer, author, speaker, publisher, podcaster, and longtime friend, Jeffrey Zeldman is here. And we're going to take a look back at web standards and what a long, strange trip it's been. Mr. Zeldman, what a pleasure. Mr. Bean. Uh, delighted, sir. <laughs> a long, strange trip. That's a Grateful Dead reference. You uh, are you a Dead fan? It is. You, I know. Are you a uh, Dead fan? No, I did see them at Watkins Glen. Did you? But I yes, I'm very old, and I saw them at Watkins Glen. <laughs> but I but I was on. Uh, I shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> I was I was very high, and I don't really remember. I remember thinking they were amazing when I was very very high, and they are a great jam band. But I didn't. Uh, that wasn't. Uh, I do like a. I love all kinds of music, but the dead never really right. yeah, yeah. for me, for whatever reason. I was now John Perry Barlow on the other hand. Yeah. No, there's a right. that's also there's going a way back for sure. Yeah, for sure. I was um Yeah. Uh I was having dinner with a friend just a couple of days ago and he was mentioning going to a Pearl Jam concert with his son. He's got a seventeen year old son. He took his son to the and he had sort of like, you know, been trying to introduce him to the music and, and stuff like that. And it occurred to me, I was like, hey, you know what? You taking a seventeen year old your your seventeen year old son to a Pearl Jam would be like us having gone to a dead show with our dad uh, in the eighties or you know, early eighties, late seventies or something like that. And he was like, Oh my God, that would that that's totally analogous. Uh, and it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> With my dad? Because <laughs> oh, no. I don't think so. No, it wouldn't. Yeah, my dad, uh, well, my dad didn't like, uh, I, he did like some rock music, and he liked Miles Davis, which is pretty great. But uh, I took my daughter to see um, Radiohead wow. a couple of weeks ago. Wow. And it was great for both of us. Hmm. But but the ki- I mean, my daughter's just about to turn 14, and she she listens to everything on Spotify and, cla- you know, Mm-hmm. She just she she knew my collection, everything I've ever listened to. By the time she was like four, right, and she could quote like Johnny Cash or Wu Tang Clan or whatever. She knew it all, right. and uh, she continues to just find stuff all the time on uh, Spotify and whatnot. I mean, there was there was an article Brian Eno wrote a while back about when he was growing up and when I was growing up. You, there was a certain kind of music that was current at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe a couple, and you you and your friends would decide what was cool, and you'd sort of judge each other by that. And and there was only certain kinds of music that anyone with, at your age would listen to, and and how now it's all different because of the internet, right? The thing we worked on, by, by the way, which I'm sure we're going to get back to in a second. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about the internet. Sure. There's like a constant present on the internet, and so kids growing up now, they might li- they might listen to Jay Z, they might listen to. Uh, Frank Zappa, they may listen to Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. they may listen to uh, Lil, Lil Pump. It's all like it's all happening at once for them in a weird way, or which is kind of nice for art. Oh my God. Yeah. I think about the scarcity of media that I had when I was growing up and the difference for my yes. own children. It's just absolutely remarkable. I can do a thing with the kids now. I do this from time to time. Or like uh, sit down for an hour and like, let me just walk you through a band. Like, let's, like, you should know about Bob Dylan. So let's go through, like, wow. and you know, and you don't, we don't listen to all the songs or even all the way through most of the songs, but like, and then he did this and then he did this and like, that's Bob Dylan. Like I had absolutely no way of doing that when I was a kid because that would have been a, a, a $600 experiment. You know what I mean? Right. Like back then. Yes. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's really remarkable the way they're going to grow up without a sense of any scarcity when it comes to like, I just want to consume any kind of uh, media, any kind of music, TV, anything. And just go see what it's all like. I remember I feeling poor. 
I remember feeling poor yeah. because there were things I couldn't get. Yeah. Like I listened to this record my friend had and I really liked it, but I, I didn't have the money to buy it. Right, right. <laughs> no, I know. Having a CD, even one a month of having new music was, was you know, was a lot for me back then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, the internet, we were going to talk about the internet. Um, but this is good. We're sort of talking about generational change. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. When I, uh, because you and I have both been involved in uh, web standards from way, way back. And, yeah. um, and it's kind of interesting to think of like where things were, what happened, and where they have uh, landed now. Because I start to see some of this stuff still coming up, and it surprises me. I have, oh, yeah. I have, I have, I'm a, I'm a Safari user, uh, and, and I've been redirected from a couple of websites saying I should go use Chrome. And it really yeah. freaked me out. <laughs> and it's, and it's Google saying that Google, the friends of standards, uh, like Google, open, the open is better. Op, yeah, yeah. Google who, you know, Chrome open is better, except where well, we're just making this for Chrome. So yeah, I don't get it. I mean, I do get it. I do get it. We, we get it. Cause it's about, there's some people at any given organization that are about the open standards and there's some people that are about competition ruthless competition and most companies need a, a mix of both and uh you know sometimes there's just a you know the garlic's good but there's a little too much garlic maybe need a, a little more cardamom i'm just no 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 go on that's, that's good yeah but so you and i um you already i think in 1998 when we started the web standards right you already had your first book out Right, hotwired style. Uh, yeah, hotwired style. Hotwired yeah. style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I should dig up a PDF of that and send it around. I think it's worth. I think. I think I'm sufficiently beyond the royalty payments now. To, oh yeah. To oh worry, yeah. Not have to worry about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Like, go. So first of all, going back, uh, the 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 framing here was in the 90s, and it was uh, around 1998 when things started to come to a head. We had multiple browsers. I was I was still working at uh, Hotwired, which was the kind of the digital online presence for all of the content of Wired Magazine plus original content. And you were uh, now you were freelance uh, web designing at the time and working on your own books. Is that true? Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I wasn't writing book. I wasn't writing books yet. I was freelancing, but I hadn't formally started a company uh and i uh yeah so i but i was i don't know how i afforded to live but a, a lot of what i did was about putting content online right. i mean to me the first website i did was for a client warner brothers uh when i was in advertising i quit advertising but the next thing i made was like my own site right and i loved the idea I mean, I mean, I was a frustrated artist, a frustrated musician, a frustrated writer. So, you know, I thought, well, hell, I can publish this myself. I'm the gatekeeper. That, yeah. And all I have to do is learn a little HTML. And, you know, yeah. I loved that. But I was doing work for clients. And I was frustrated and baffled that we had to make so many different versions of the same really crude content. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a mailing list. You were on it. I, I don't remember. It wasn't Web Design L. I don't remember the name of it. But but uh, oh, yeah. George Olson shared, you know, the, this. Uh, I forget what it was that upset him. And then Glenn Davis, who cool we side could spend of the hours, day. Cool side of the day. We, yeah. Yes. And then Project Cool, right. where we could spend hours talking about Glenn. Yeah. Uh, I ran into him again after a long time, which was great. And I uh, actually interviewed him on my podcast 
uh, about a year ago. But uh, he said, well, let's do something. Yeah. And then we all started brainstorming. And uh, it seemed impossible at the time. You're right. It really seemed like we were tilting at windmills. Right. Right. Um, I had this sort of weird inside view to this stuff because when I was at Wired, right. uh, we got an invitation from the World Wide Web Consortium, which is the standards body that makes all of these website uh, web standards or web, web recommendations as they were at the time. Right. Um, and they said, look, we realize that in the development of HTML and CSS, and this new thing we're starting to work on called CSS, that we don't have a voice from uh, people that are pushing the boundaries of design. And so we figured Wired Magazine, you know, you probably uh, qualify as much as anybody else. And, um, and so I Absolutely. sort of took up on it. And I joined the, the consortium um, as, a, as an invited expert, which just simply means you, don't have to, you didn't have to pay, right? Because they had all of these sort of companies that would pay to be part of the consortium so they could have an influence over the specifications as they were being developed. And this would be companies, everything from Microsoft and Netscape at the time to HP was on it, you know, because they were doing like HTML and printers and, you know, weird stuff like that. So there yes. was all of these different companies and these some European companies I had never heard of, but they were, you know, doing, you know, publishing things and stuff like that. And these people would get together and they would meet quarterly. So four times a year, we'd go somewhere in the world. I got to travel all the world. I like went to France, went to Japan, you know, cool stuff like this. Go to these meetings and they would have conversations about the future of like, what should we do? And I had literally no idea what they were talking about. And, you know, and they're talking about document object models and box flow and stuff like that in 1996. And I'm just like, you know, this kid with an amazing job that I somehow happened to get. And I'm sitting here with a bunch of computer scientists in the room who are incredibly smart, totally opaque and furious at each other. <laughs> and, yes. and so I'm like, what is what is going on here? Uh, and occasionally they would ask me a question like, and you know, like, do you want to draw irregular shapes and have text flow around it? And I would like ask the designers back at Wired, and we all like, yeah, man, Cork Express does that, so let's do that. You, you should do that, you know. But um, but it was very clear at the time that the way in which the the content was being rendered by this piece of software, that the people in the room believed whoever had the most influence over that decision would get the next billion dollars in revenue from this internet thing, right? And you could see it playing out, and it was pretty stressful. Uh, but also fascinating, as you can imagine. Uh, but that was happening on that side, right? And at the same time, th then those people would go back and, and develop their browsers and seemingly not pay any attention to what had been decided in that room. And instead, like, that's right. Well, well okay, we will we will do the minimum viable amount of work to make that you know that one thing we talked about in the in the last meeting, and then ninety percent of our effort will go into stuff that no other browser has. So people will choose our browser, and then we will win the web. And that was kind of the scenario. Yeah, I always thought that they were uh, mainly doing it almost like uh, paying protection money. <laughs> like, it wasn't really we intend to do this. I mean, in theory, they had the wonderful opportunity to say, here's what's going to matter to customers. Here's what's going to matter to designers and people who want to make stuff. And we want to do that, and here's our proposal. They had that, they had that opportunity. But the, the W3C at the time was so sort of wishy-washy, I think. Uh, that, you know, it was so unenforced, it was so soft, right? It was very pastel that they, um, you know, they just said, okay, well, we're paying $25,000 a year, so nobody can sue us or say 
We didn't care about this. We tried. We tried. It would be, you know, really almost like a protection racket. Not that Tim Berners-Lee was running a protection racket, but that the companies approached it almost that way. Like, oh, this is, we have to keep a lawyer on staff too. This is like a, the cost of doing business kind of. It was a marketing expense. I think. Yes. I think. A marketing expense. Good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. See, we can say like W3C members and we can put that on our, put that on our website, put that on our about page. Um, yeah, I think to a certain, certain extent, um, that there, there's some validity to that. Um, uh, but, but ultimately it led to a scenario where there were wildly divergent implementations in the browsers, right? Like it was, um, uh, essentially the two big players that split the, the, um, uh, adoption rate between them were Netscape Navigator, Internet Explorer, inconsistent in how they rendered the standards, and then wildly divergent in the new stuff that they were adding. It took Netscape a while to even support CSS at all. So in in IE3, to me, was the first time I took Internet Explorer seriously. Mm-hmm. Netscape had a phenomenal market share. With Netscape 2, Microsoft came out with IE2, their first version or their first public version. And we all thought, well, that's kind of a joke. Right. Um, Nobody will, you know, nobody will take, it's like nobody will ever take AOL away. Nobody will ever take, take, uh, oh man. Uh, what was the guy, what, the guy was your friend, the, the thing that everyone used for music for a while, the social network everyone used for music before Facebook, before like the, all, we've seen all these giants perish, right. but Netscape seemed like an unperishable giant. And then in 1996, Microsoft made this gallery of CSS layouts. And even though the CSS was only partial support, and even though we didn't know this, but they were doing some of it wrong, I just, I looked at this and said, oh my God, this is, because by 1996, right, I'm like, you can just use type and color and make real design, as opposed to let's cut up a bunch of images or let's use image maps or the, the means were so limited and the assumptions like this will only work if someone's monitor is this, mm. this size and all <laughs> that. And suddenly it was like n- that none of that has to be true anymore. I just thought, Oh, this is Jen Simmons has a, a phrase she uses now for design now called intrinsic web design, mm-hmm. because she says we finally have the tools to do intrinsic web design. Yep. But in a way that was the start of it, right? When, when you could actually design with typography and color and everything, using a admittedly a very primitive design language and that's when IE3 suddenly seemed like the winner. I didn't know Microsoft would win and I didn't like them at the time. But uh, and then when with the 4.0 browsers that's when Netscape finally supported uh CSS but it did it well nobody had invented the reset yet, right? Eric Meyer hadn't invented the CSS reset. So right. Netscape you'd say, "Well, I want and again, we did everything in pixels back then. I want 10 pixels under my headlines and 20 pixels under my paragraphs. And Netscape would go, okay, 10 pixels plus this giant default that we randomly put in. <laughs> and 20 pixels plus this unpublished random default that we put in that you can't control, right? And IE would go, well, it's 15 pixels, but we're trying for 10. Like a, a dumb example. <laughs> IE was trying to comply. They, they, the problem there was the box model, which, uh, oh man, oh I'm going to get too deep into it right away. But uh, their box model, I loved. It made much more sense, but it wasn't CSS. Yeah. So we had to rally and say, please do the messed up one that Bert Bose and Hokum Lee actually wrote. Don't do the one that makes sense. Do the one that causes you to have to do extra confusing math. 
because that's the spec. We have to live and die by the spec as written. It was it was it was a period of time where there would be these examples like that CSS gallery on the Microsoft IE website, and we would go and look at that stuff. And I had a similar experience to you. I was like, that that is the way we should do it. It's pure text. It's native. It feels right. Yep. And then we would go back and like, all right, let's try this. And it would be so much work to get it to work in anything else in any other browser that it was um, it was unrealistic in a production environment. Because that, you know, I was in the time was working for a company that was publishing 10 or 20 things a day and we were designing these things bespoke, right? This is, um, before CMS, this is before CMS. So everything was handcrafted and, um, and you know, we use some templates here, but a lot of the pieces were feature articles. Like it's Wired Magazine. We're doing the magazine yeah. here, right? And so we'd be doing this stuff and realize very quickly, like all of that stuff that points to the future is unrealistic for us to be able to do at all. And we do occasionally a special feature and stuff like that. I'd go like squirrel away some time with Doug Bowman to go like try and work on something. But, um, but for the most part, it, it was this tantalizing like carrot at the end of the stick that we could never reach. And I think that was the level of frustration that sort of spawned a lot of this web standards project, this, this sort of, um, this almost community driven response to say like, Hey, browser manufacturers, like, we're not going to use any of your stuff unless you get your, uh, get your act together here um, and get stuff going. IE5's colored scroll bars in, uh, was a big, <laughs> was a super help to us. Was a super help to us recruiting b- because it was, it was almost like a, a comic skit with a weird payoff where they were like, we heard you. You're saying you don't want to design the same website five different with five different sets of code. We've heard you. We proudly introduce the ability to have colored scroll bars. We were like, no, that's not what we said. And we made much more of it than it actually was. It was completely reasonable for them to go, we have a time, we have a roadmap and some of these features are for the open web and some of them are for our biggest clients. And if we have a fortune three company that wants colored scroll bars, we're going to put that in our next browser that, that actually pays to use the browser. We're going to put that in. Sorry. That actually, I think the naivete we had when I look back on it is, is kind of fun, but, but probably we wouldn't have been successful if we'd been as, you know, as sophisticated in the ways of business as we are now. Uh, you right? just, it's just the audacity of youth, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. Or in my case, I wasn't even young, but you know, <laughs> younger, younger. definitely younger. All right. So just want to take a little break before we go on uh, and talk about a sponsor of the show and, and talk a little bit about sleep. Uh, because this episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Casper. Casper are the company focused on sleep, and they're dedicated to making you exceptionally comfortable one night at a time. You spend a third of your life sleeping, and if you spent a third of your life doing anything, you want to make sure it's the best it could possibly be, and that's why you need Casper. Casper mattresses are perfectly designed for humans with engineering to soothe and support your natural geometry. It's got all the right support in all the right places. So what goes into making a Casper mattress so comfortable? Well, they combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality mattress with just the right sink and bounce. Casper mattresses are designed and developed in the U.S., and their breathable design helps you regulate your body temperature throughout the night. With over 20,000 reviews and an average rating of 4.8 stars, Casper is very quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. They deliver it directly to your door, and if for any reason you don't love it, Casper has a hassle-free return policy. So, you can get... 
$50 towards a select mattress by visiting casper.com slash presentable FM. That's casper.com slash presentable FM and using presentable FM at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com presentable FM and the offer code presentable FM. We thank Casper for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So yeah, so we were on the, the, I think it was the web design L mailing list that Steve Champion that, uh, managed. Um, and we were on that, uh, on that mailing list. And it was, uh, like you said, Glenn Davis, a couple other people, all kind of, uh, of similar minds. So let's do something. What did you do? So we, we, uh, we, we talked for a while and we were trying to come up with a name for the thing. And it, it was sort of a group, uh, a group brainstorm, so I can't really say who decided that standards was the right word, but the thing I liked was web standards project was WASP. I wasn't the only person who saw that, mm. and like, okay, and then Glenn Davis said, well, a WASP is really a, you know, it's a small thing, like a developer, but if you get enough of them together, you don't want to make them angry. <laughs> and the WASP can sting, but it also builds, you know, and so it seemed like a very good... uh and then he asked me to design it, which of course I did because I was I was thrilled to do it. And, and back then I would do a project just uh, if I believed in it and if I could put my name on it. <laughs> right. Like I used I used to sign them. There would be a link back to my you know my personal site, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So that and that was perfectly reasonable for 1998. By the way, you know I, if I. If I knew then again what I know now, I would go, oh, don't ever do any work for free unless it's for a well it was it was for a charity that was our charity, so it was actually perfectly fine. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. And uh, we had a falling out immediately from the HTML Writers Guild. Do you remember that totally. detail? Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember the guild. I don't remember the fallout though. You could tell <laughs> go back into I'll the old, tell you old gossip. So the HTML Writers Guild were the they were actually fighting. They understood. See, see, one of the problems, like you said, was that the scientists were opaque. One of our jobs was to figure out what the benefits were because they were so busy with the genius side of it yeah. that they forgot to tell anyone the benefits. So one of the benefits that I didn't understand early on was that semantics would – well, later on down the road, they would help you when search engines were invented. Obviously, we didn't know that was coming, but they were actually helpful for devices like links. They were help, you know, if you used structural semantics in marking up your content, that was a good thing. And, and that's something that the uh, HTML Writers Guild understood uniquely among our group because we were all in doing production stuff for clients or for our, our company, in your case. And so, you know, we were basically whatever it takes to get this job done. These browsers are, it's a, a moving target. They're hap it's happening real fast. And if this part's an image map and this thing, I'm going to try this thing called JavaScript and I'll have a fallback, but basically you need to have JavaScript. You know, we were just experiment. We saw the whole thing as kind of an underground experimental thing. And so in designing the web standards project in the browser, which is how I did it then, uh, I would use like I would type a bullet point and then put that in a paragraph because I didn't know that really should be an ordered list. I mean, later I became you know pretty, but this was very early yeah. and I didn't know. And so they dropped out because they said we should. And the problem was if we did it the way they said, the display would have been terrible because the support for the 
the limited CSS we were using was like a hybrid table layout, right? So I had columns in a table layout, but then I was using CSS to store to style the the typography to the extent that I could. And but but it would have been really ugly. So <laughs> in a way, it was a dramatization of the problem. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing. Uh, and it all came down to a bulleted list. <laughs> and, and I said, well, for this to look right. I have to do it this way. And they were like, we can't be the web standards project and abuse HTML. And I was like, but we can't use HTML correctly and get our designs to work. That's why we're having this fight. And so we, they, they withdrew. And it, I thought we were doomed because at the time they had uh, like 15,000 followers on their mailing list. And I was, and they just, they didn't say a word when we launched. And I was like, well, this is never going to work. But, you got it on the front page of Hotwired. I got it on a list apart, which was just getting started then, but had, I don't know, 16,000 readers or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Glenn put it on Project Cool. Uh, Steve put it on Web Design L. Dory Smith, I don't remember what she published to, but so everybody in the thing was involved in some kind of writing or blog, early blogging or something. And we used that leverage and we did a, a roadblock, right? So if you opened the web, if you were a developer and you opened the web that day to the 10 or 20 sites you might reasonably be expected to visit, mm. almost every one of them was talking about the web standards project. Mm-hmm. And you were like, wow, this is a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. That's close, closest we could get in the 90s to something going viral. Yeah. You can't, you can do other things now, but you can't do that. Right. Right. If you had to get your message on all 50 of the most top websites or all 200 of the top, you couldn't. Then again, there are no real top websites. It's all social media anyway. So going viral on Twitter kind of does the trick. And so there's a basic premise, kind of a, a mission there saying like, uh, well, you know, perhaps you should explain what, you know, what, where you were coming from there, but ultimately saying we, we need to get everybody to play together. Right. That's it. So it was basically just shaming. At first, and Glenn was great at that, Glenn wrote these wonderful editorials signed anonymously by the wasp uh, that were, that were, you know, brilliantly shaming. And then he, he left and Glenn left. And when I took over, I wrote these sort of more conciliatory, <laughs> more like I'm really a consultant. I can deliver bad news in a tactful way. Right. right? Th- like the, the original leaders were exactly the right people to be the voice of the thing. Cause they were just, we're mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore. But then once the browser company started paying attention, uh, we could say things like that's really fantastic. Uh, and we'd like you to keep going in that direction. How can we help? We had Eric Meyer and a bunch of other people on the CSS, the CSS samurai. Oh yeah. 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 I remember right, that. Right. And there was the, uh, the acid test. The acid three test. So basically we were saying, Hey, we're nerds. We'll do a bunch of free work for you. Uh, it was really the engineers. It was people like Tantic Chalik going, yeah, we're going to do this. Right. It was, it was people who worked at the browser companies who were committed to that and said, this is our opportunity to do the right thing that I've been wanting to do anyway. And Tantic made IE five Mac, which people don't remember. What a, but it was an incredible breakthrough at the time. It was like that was it was beautiful. It almost gave Apple 
a new lease on life until Steve Jobs came back. Just the IE5 Mac was so good. It's true. It really did. Do you remember when that came out? I yeah, I'm, I'm going to say like, 90, uh, like 2000. Right. So kind of right, right in the middle of all of this. But but you're right. I mean, your, your point there being you, you managed to get through to the people who were responsible literally for writing the code that rendered the stuff. As opposed to the product managers or the marketing managers or the representatives to the standards bodies. But it was actually the uh, developers who were the ones who were like, I'm going to make a case for this internally. That our priority should be a little higher on the standards-based stuff and a little less on the, uh, on the proprietary stuff. Yeah. I mean, when you, uh, you've been a very high-level consultant, and you know, that's not what you do now, but you've been a very high-level consultant mm-hmm. for years. And I think a lot of times you, you sort of spoke to the C-level executives right which is a a brilliant approach cuz they're ultimately the authorities who decide but for whatever reason i've always spoken to people who do the same job as me yeah right and i think the combination of the different levels of people in the early web standards project was great because we all had different audiences right 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 if there were, if there were 50,000 people doing web design work in 1998 we probably each had a percentage of them with some overlap, but not a ton of overlap. And uh, I think uh, just I'm still – I still struggle with it because I keep wanting to – like I want to take the lessons I learn in the industries my studio works for. And, you know, so if we just did a great thing for a jewelry company, I actually want to write an article for Modern Jeweler. Mm. But, you know, I'm going to end up writing it for a list of part, <laughs> right? <laughs> because I just, I just talk to uh, – I feel I, it's like I feel safe talking to my people or something. I don't know what that is. I, I can speculate, but uh. <laughs> the uh, I just looked it up. So uh, IE five for the Mac, which was one of those pivotal, even like cross platform, uh, was one of the first browsers to come out that really embraced a bunch of the standards correctly, and that was yes. January five two thousand. What did I say? Uh, yeah, perfect. And 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 it perfect. was you know just nine months later or so, roughly, that we first started to get together to start talking about adaptive path. Right, which was which was this company we wanted yep. to put together to do like not what web design was being sold to the Fortune 500, but this like native like web first, like not bringing old business models onto a new platform, but developing like this new level of innovation based on the platform. UX, yes. you were like one of the experience. first people that I think you were one of the you were one of the first people, certainly in our field. You and your your you know Peter and and all the people that you worked with to just embrace user experience as a thing and talk about that. And it really, even in your early books, when you were still writing web design books, you were always, I can remember your second book, uh, which is the art and science of web design in the forward, you were saying you're sitting in a meeting and people are saying, we need a flash intro here. And you were going, you know, that's exactly what your customers don't need. Right. right. You know, because nobody's thinking about the customer at that time. They're not thinking yeah. about customer experience. They're thinking about what will make us look like we spent more money than our competitor or what do what what will get me off? You know, what can make me feel like a big shot when I show this to my kids yeah. or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever this, you know, when I show this to the board of directors, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Right. Wow. It's, it's like Hollywood. That's great. Yeah. It's like, and you were saying yep. early on in books that you wrote that theoretically were about HTML and CSS and interface design and all those things, but they were really even very early. Well, maybe not you were talking about UX. So I don't know how you caught that train. But I, and I do think the things are, they're kind of related in some way. 
certainly if we didn't have a stable platform, which we have because of this, you know, standards, mm. uh, we couldn't have gone on to do stuff like UX because mm. we'd still be doing 72 different versions of the same crappy website. In the, in the early 2000s, the, like the argument that we were trying to make was twofold. One was uh, exactly what you were saying. From a user-centered point of view, if you start with the things that people need and you find ways to accurately uncover those things, you will be more successful. We call that product market fit today, right? But that, back then, we were just saying, like, you have to come from where people you know, have needs that need to be solved in the world. And the second part is the way to do that is in a way that is native to the web because, frankly, that will be the easiest way for you to manage it going forward. Right. Like if you, if you follow web standards and consider what is available in today's browsers that meet those standards consistently as a constraint and don't try to push beyond that, then you will have the easiest chance of like maintaining a giant website over the course of years, which is what you intend to do. There's going to be no possible way you'll, you'll be able to uh, keep up with all the stuff that the browsers try and fail and try and fail. So just go with a web standards-based approach, and we'll show you the way. And it turns out, from a design perspective, you can actually get there. And we'll point you to people who can do that. And again, like I'll bring up Doug Bowman as like the quintessential example or, or the work that Mike Davidson did or, or the work that you were doing, for that matter. We could point to this stuff and see, look, look, you, look, this stuff looks contemporary, cutting-edge, innovative. But under the covers, there's literally one file of HTML, one file of CSS, and nothing else. Like, we can do this. Uh, and that was the approach that we came and we brought it, you know, to, you know, like you said, fortune 50 companies and in, in those boardrooms and, and you know, I'm standing there talking to them about, no, 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 it's got to validate, you know, talking to these CEOs and like, well, whatever, like just make it work, you know? So it's funny the the first, uh, the first thing we said was kind of moral, right? Well, if we do this and we write this semantically and we use these simple and lean things and it'll, it'll reach people even if they're on slow dial-up connections and it'll work in every device and that's really good. And they would push back and say, well, our customers are wealthy and they're luxurious and they have very expensive computers and fast connections. We don't need that. Thank you very much. And then they invented Google and we said, well, you know, the same reason it's really good for people with disabilities, it's also very good for Google. Google's the biggest blind user on the planet. And suddenly they were like, oh, oh, okay. And to me, I like selling web standards became very easy when, you know, when we called it, uh, I never called it SEO. I called it findability mm. and stuff, but, but that's really what it was. <laughs> it was like, you know, the best content in the world is useless if it doesn't meet a customer's actual need. And it's also useless if nobody can, can find, find it. it. So, yeah. yeah. So, so those two things, usability and findability, uh, became huge. And I remember having trouble. I mean, again, if I was the guy who did bad bullet points because it looked prettier, <laughs> I had a hard time at first with people like, uh, Jakob Nielsen, where I go like, yeah, no, I don't really want to, I, I want, this medium can be so much. And for us to say it has to have blue underlined links every time, I don't want to do that. And I, I sort of misjudged. I took the, the letter of what he was saying and not the spirit, but eventually working like, like watching smart people like you and also people like Jared Spool and uh, Steve Krug was huge. Just, you know, who wrote, don't make me think. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is for people. It's not about how clever I am. That's also a maturity thing. You know, when you're younger, you want to show everyone how clever you are most of the time. And when you're older, you want to actually be of some use. Yeah. You've had, you've had some humbling experiences. But by the way, 
the thing you were talking about, the thing you were selling, Typekit, which you were so instrumental in, is another perfect example of once we have the standards, look what we can do. We can commercialize and them. The, and the, and the, we can solve this problem for designers and their clients forever. Yeah. And the complexity of it, we can manage for them. Oh, right. Like yeah. if something changes, Typekit just does that under the hood. We have the experts here, so you don't have to do that anymore, designer. Just keep writing valid CSS and including this little script, and you'll be fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a fantastic example of your thinking in parallel tracks. Like, what's good for the web? What's the problem? I hear all my friends complaining about what did what did Hokum do? Just do we talked about real type on the web, but it's not happening. What can I do as a business? I don't know how you do that. That's a real gift, but you sort of saw. I sort of see where it's going, but I don't think, how can I help it get there? Fa- I, I think, how can I help it get there faster by writing an article? Yeah, Which well. is fine, too. But, but you, that's fine, too. But you, you get to help it get faster by making a business, which is amazing. Part of it is, is just geography. It's just marinating in a, in a community of people that only think about making businesses, uh, which was you right. know, 10 years ago in San Francisco. It was hard not right, to right. think about that stuff. Um, and the kind of clients that we had for Adaptive Path were all those people. And so um, they would always be asking me, why, why are you doing consulting? <laughs> you know, shouldn't you be making companies like everybody, literally everybody else in this cafe right here? <laughs> where, yeah. you know? so, um, so part of it is, is circumstances. And another part of it is just uh, and, um, a, t- a terror of being bored and always looking for something new, new to work on. So That's true, too. And I have, to, uh, I have several businesses that I've kept going for a long time but I have to continually like make them interesting to myself again. Right. I have to reinvent sure. them. Otherwise, uh, otherwise I couldn't keep going. Yeah. 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 Um, well, yeah. And also, I mean, not to discount the value of the thought leadership that went into them, like a list apart, uh, or a book apart for that matter, taking again, this set of values that you and I share around an open web and around interchangeable standards and turning that into a community, which is something I think, uh, you excel at and have done very, very well and being a voice for that community. Frankly, when you say like, I was off talking to CEOs, but you were talking to people who are doing the work. I think, um, that's probably where the bulk of the change actually came from is an uprising of people who are actually doing the implementations on a day-to-day basis saying, here's where the problems are and here's what needs to happen. So, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. I think you need both. I think you need both. And in some cases now, you know, you just, uh, if people know what the right thing, to, if people, if designers and developers or whatever we call ourselves now, if we know what the right thing is to do, in many cases, we can do it without asking permission, right? right? We can just make it accessible. We don't have to say, I'd like to make it accessible, especially with so many projects in-house now. You, you, you know, the designers can basically tell their boss, this is how I define the job. You hired me for my expertise. Thank you very much. Accessibility is going to be part of this. Testing is going to be part of this. Research is going to be part of this. Iteration. I mean, again, I, I heard a funny story. Jason Santa Maria, who used to be at Happy Cog and then he was worked with for you on Typekit, mm. he told this great story of how – because when, when he was at Happy Cog, we were very waterfall. And it was very, is it ready to show yet? <laughs> right. Is it ready right. to show yet? Like. Like, can I just, no, nobody looks, nobody looks until it's absolutely ready. And you were like, you walked by his desk and went, Hey, that looks pretty good. And then the next thing he knew it was, it was being prototyped somewhere. <laughs> and you're like, what is that? He said, Oh, that's your idea. We're, we're, we're make, putting it in live code and seeing if he's like, no, no, no one can see it. They might see it. They might see it. <laughs> we're like, yeah, exactly. But that, that was a huge mental shift too. 
which again, web standards makes this possible, yeah. right? Because we have this solid, fairly simple code base with these three-legged stool, right? CSS, JavaScript, and HTML. You can basically prototype stuff very quickly and know that it will work everywhere, right? Um, yeah, so that's very cool. Yeah. And, uh, and those these businesses, these startup businesses couldn't exist without that rapid prototyping. I, I worked at a company that was ahead of its time. I, I had a job as a creative director at a dot-com in the late 90s. I didn't last there very long. I got discouraged and quit. But what, they were basically building a suite of tools that prefigured uh, Google Calendar and Gmail and you know the stuff that we take for granted now, Google Docs. They were basically they were betting on the web and saying you're not going to have to use all this Microsoft stuff. And the advantage is you'll be able to share in real time and collaborate in real time. So they had it right, mm. but the web wasn't really. There might have been some management problems at the company. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But also the web wasn't really ready. Yeah. And uh, and so they they failed. Uh, and yet their idea was right. As we can look at Google and see now, like you know, there's no question that. There's a market for it. It just, you know, the time has to be right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so many examples of that. I mean, there was like, remember Six Degrees, which was essentially one of the very first social networks just before. Yeah. But, um, but without the content component, without the sharing, you simply just connected to everybody and it was super interesting. And then what do you do? Nothing. I don't know. And it went away, but there was like Cosmo, which did deliveries and Webvan, which brought groceries and like all that stuff happened. Everybody gave it a go, but the audience wasn't there yet and stuff. And so there was a lot of like, uh, a lot of venture capital pumped into first versions of things that were not quite ready yet. Um, I, yeah, I had a show called 15 Minutes, which was uh, audio and video interviews. <laughs> I threw my connection. Warner Brothers was my web client at the time, and they, uh, my client, Don Buckley, would say, I really want you to interview uh, Samuel L. Jackson, if you don't mind. And I'd be like, yeah, yes, I will. And then he gave me the right to, to use the whole interview. I like there might be a clip on the website for a movie, but I could use the whole interview. So I did. And uh, but the problem was there was you know it was like in the uh, it was QuickTime and uh, Real Player, and it didn't stream in real time. You downloaded yeah, it. It was yeah, just yeah. it was too early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just too early. And you know if I'd kept at it, if I'd been the kind of product focused person who went, I know my idea is right. And I'd come back to it every couple of years and borrow some money. I, you know, then maybe I would have invented YouTube, which I'm just as glad I didn't, <laughs> because there's there's problems with it. But but that I, those ideas were all there. We've always been uh, trying to bring them to life. Right. And it is funny sometimes when you, of course, I mean, every it's all about execution. There's a lot of stuff, but there's probably a million people right now who think they secretly invented YouTube. Okay, so I'll, sure. I'll stop. Jenville probably <laughs> thinks she invented like because she was doing cooking with rock stars in like 1997 on her website in QuickTime right. videos. So that's right. That that was YouTube. It was just, but there was only one co- content from one person. So yeah, yeah. yeah you're yeah. in uh, venture capital now, oh, yeah, no, or yeah, you're... that's my job. I'm a I'm a VC now. Yeah, it's a whole different thing. Do you love it? I do. I do. And I'll tell you why, right? Like, I think I've explained this on the podcast before. 
half of the job is very much like going out and hearing people's amazing ideas and feeling their enthusiasm for it. Um, the difficult part yes. is that we say no to most of them uh, simply because the right. businesses aren't right or they're not the right fit for the idea. There's a multiple reasons. But that infectiousness of like people who are thinking about the future and being around them constantly, that's half of the job. The other half of the job is literally doing the kind of consulting that I did with Adaptive Path for the companies we have already invested in. But doing so right. without the obligations of the like the consulting business, which I, I always hated, the hourly rates and the change orders and the like getting approvals and and oh man, that stuff drove me crazy because it wasn't the work. So it has taken a crystallization of just the work um with with you know the benefits now of like a couple dec- decades of experience of seeing all of this stuff play out over and over again generationally as we've been talking about uh and being able to sit down with founders who are just starting their company and having uh uh to be able to offer to them what they need if they need it when they want you know so um so yeah that actually like, sounds wonderful that's yeah, cool it's a cool job that's great and it's and it's with a group of people uh that I love you know like it's a it's very different from the kind of other venture capital firms that are in up and up and down Sand Hill Road which which can be very well I, don't, I won't I won't I don't want to speak ill of any of the competition we've just created something that has a very different set of values and I frankly is the only reason I even decided to come into the area of finance at all so finance is ripe for um ethical uh, ethical projects and it has been wildly unequal un, unevenly distributed for sure yeah yeah but I, I i like what you're saying because it it sounds like in a strange like the kicks that we got in the early days of web standards when we we're like we're inventing this stuff yeah. or the kicks that you might have gotten on hotwired or i got doing a new site and going i'm going to try this thing that i don't know how to do and i'm going to make this work even though i have no idea what i'm doing it sounds like, in a way, you still have that excitement. You get the, I'm excited and I don't know what I'm doing, or I, I have a great idea, but I'm in the dark a bit from the people you're advising, and then you get to bring your sort of wisdom to it, too. I mean, I teach and I uh, I mentor, uh, and it's like the greatest fun, because if, as opposed to, I mean, when you're a consultant, even if you have the greatest clients in the world... Uh, they're the decision makers. They may be distracted. They may not feel the same urgency. They're not coming to you with their hat in their hand to the same degree that a student might or or a founder that you're advising. Right. Uh, but I do think you're right that that level of excitement that we felt early on in the early days of the web exists in pockets uh, and continues to do. And it has always, right? Every Every couple of years, there's some, something new, and there's a small group of people. And there's a small group of people, an increasingly larger group of people, working on uh, crypto and the future of the economy and stuff like that. And that's super interesting right now. And they are uncovering stuff around the way that the blockchain works and proof of work and whole new models uh, in, in stuff that, um, that feels like how we felt about publishing and giving people the ability to share, right, that 20 See, years and, ago. And that's, that's great that you feel that. Uh, I know I have other smart friends who are real into it. I, I can't, I mean, maybe it's, you know, I'm focused on my work and my family. I, you know, I can't really no, no. Ha- talk about blockchain. Yeah, I, I it's okay. can't have conversations about it. It's, no, I know. But it's, it's, it's happening just, it's in just, gene sequencing and I haven't the foggiest idea how to, what's going on over there. Um, but the, wow. the, the, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's happening, uh, you know, machine learning. We invested in a company that does, like machine learning based on data that's coming out of hardware that's strapped to horses for veterinarians that fu- fundamentally changing the way that, that kind of care happens. And like, whoa, my God, <laughs> like it's so interesting. I know. Um, and we are so at the dawn. Absolutely. 
everything that we worked on was such, I mean, we in, we were the first people to use fire. We're not even at the bronze <laughs> no. age yet, but we can see that it's coming. Yeah, yeah. And, and just what a what an honor to be alive to see this kind of transition happening. And and to frankly to try to figure out like, oh my gosh, right? Like society is kind of buckling under it right now. And we haven't figured this out. It's, you know, and that's a thing we have to like to turn all of our attention to for a while and then continuously yeah. and, and integrate. Um but yeah, like it's it's um it's not at all figured out, not at all. And so, um, so it is a really, it, it continues to be, I think, just thrilling. So anyway, that's a long-winded um, answer to your question of why I switched to the other side of the table. And it makes perfect sense. I, so a lot of, I, I was a writer. I'm still a writer, but when I publish other people, it's great to go, you know, we really need a book on uh, working offline. And you know who should write it? Jeremy Keith. Yeah. Like, that's a different kind of joy yeah. than oh, yeah. I've got to write about this. Like, you know, again, the more you can hand off to brilliant people or it well, in Jeremy's case, he volunteered. It's not like I told him what to write about. He, he knew what to write about, but, but that, that kind of the joy of just working with such smart people all the time. Yeah. Uh, and anyone really in this field, regardless of what you do, I mean, it should feel that way. It should feel like you're just, discovering things, inventing things, disrupting things, even though that's a dirty word, um, uh, learning, right? Yeah. You know, my dad's 91, oh he just turned God. 91 and he still reads. And one reason he's, uh, a fairly coherent guy for 91 is because he, he and his wife, they read all the time. They're constantly reading. And I think, and they're reading, you know, not escapist stuff, but, but science books and history books and, the more you learn, the more you, you know, the more you stay alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's what I appreciate so much about your work, you know, for people who make the web to feel as a sense of community, right? The sense that like, Oh, we are a group of people that do this stuff. Um, and we can have these conversations. I think I, 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 facilitating that platform has been a really big deal. So I appreciate that. Keep doing it. You're good at it. Yeah, you too. Cool. Well, thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it must be dark there. Over right. here in it's London? Street. Oh my God, yeah. It yes. is. It's good. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's, it's a rainy afternoon here in New York. We've had rain for two days, so it feels like London. <laughs> We've had beautiful weather. It's been actually spectacular this summer. Hot, nice, um, and good. Yeah. Man, it's good to talk to you. I, it's uh, good to talk to you too. I want to just like, let me just go over where I got to send everybody. They got to go to zeldman.com and have a look at your website. Uh, they've got about, what is that, 22, 23 years worth of content there for them to go through. So you've got plenty, plenty to look at there. Um, you do uh, a podcast, which everybody should immediately, uh, in the podcast player they're using now, go find The Big Web Show and subscribe to that and then go listen to. You've been doing that for years. How long have you been doing that? I don't know. Not as long as, uh, not as, long as Zeldman.com and a list apart. Yeah, but, but a long time. But uh, a long time. Long enough to change publishers three times so <laughs> well you i know. started at one place went to another place and then went back to the first place well, there you so. go. all right yeah uh what's well, great you've got everybody's been on it you gotta go listen to them all they're great they're fantastic uh a list website has been around for a long time there's unbelievable amount of resources there and i'm gonna make a plug for you everybody should sign up for the patreon give you guys a couple of bucks keep doing what you're doing every month i've done that they should do oh, that. cool thank yeah. you yeah i mean you know, you don't have 45 ads and trackers. And I don't think you're mining cryptocurrency in the background of the website. You're not doing those things. So I'm doing everything as, 
as dumbly as possible. <laughs> so, like, wait, we might accidentally make some money here. Stop. <laughs> um, and you've got a book apart, which uh, I think I've had half of we your do. authors on the show here. Um, uh, I, just, all of them, all of them are great. And you still get to work with Jason Santa Maria, which is wonderful, right? Yep. So, um, and then you've got uh, your agency. Tell me about that. Actually, I don't. I don't even know that much about uh, studio. Uh, studio. Zeldman. Although I say Studio Z when I talk to people yeah. because it just yeah. feels like such an egomaniac <laughs> to say my own name. It's very weird. We uh, can be like uh, essentially. There's companies that have their own in-house design departments that are very good now. Right. There's a lot of big companies, a lot of Fortune 500 companies that are hiring great people, and there's people. People like uh, like Kevin Hoffman that they're now work at a company and run a UX team, and that's all great. But there's a lot of other businesses and nonprofits that can't afford that, and they could afford to go to a local shop for a redesign, but it, they might not get the level of expertise that they would that we hope to provide. Mm-hmm. So basically, we think of ourselves as uh, an embedded team. Like a part, like we're your part-time in-house studio, if that makes sense. For some of our clients, yeah. we just like embed ourselves. We uh, where we care, we learn your business. Uh, we learn as much about it as we can. We do that anyway, even if it was uh, not a kind of embedded relationship. It's interesting because we don't specialize in any kind of particular kind of work. Um, when I was at Happy Cog, we did a lot of content sites, a lot of university sites. I figured that's what we would do, but. Uh, you know, you also talk to the people who come in. We're, um, I'm hoping to do some work on uh, prison reform wow. with uh, an amazing organization that uh, the leader of it, their story, just, you know, the story they tell about why they started this organization is just so mind-boggling. So I really want to work. Actually, it was like he was in high school and he was uh, he was uh, trying to free Nelson Mandela, right? He was, you know, supporting the effort to free Nelson Mandela and he graduated and he had all these, uh, these skills as an organizer. And when he graduates high school, Nelson Mandela's free South Africa changes. And he's like, okay, well, how do I fight apartheid now? And then he went, Oh, it's happening in America. It's in our prison system. So he writes an article about it and he can't get it published. It's a longer article and he can't get that published. So he writes a book about it and he gets it published, but nobody's reading it. So he starts an organization. And now the organization is very successful. It's like every time it, he failed to gain traction, it inspired him to do something bigger instead of what most of us would do, which is go, okay, the, nobody wants to hear this. Obviously, I'm a failure and nobody wants to hear this. He just kept going, hmm, maybe I haven't done it the right way. Maybe I need to go bigger. And he just kept going bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, we're in early talks with them. I'm very excited about that because uh, – I mean, we need to fix that. <laughs> we really uh, need to fix like uh, one in four young black men being in prison. It's, it's astonishing yeah. and terrifying. And in 2018, this shouldn't be, this should never have happened, but certainly now it shouldn't happen. And it, it feels like something I can do. You know, there things are happening right now that I'm not entirely happy with. And there are things I can't do about that other than vote. Uh, but, but this is something I can do. It's a form of activism, I can help with. So I'm very excited about that. And of course, we're also, you know, we do, uh, we like working with companies too, especially companies that uh, one of our, we seem to have fallen into a thing where we work with companies that are family owned, which is a real trip. Hmm. Uh, And 
wonderful and baffling. It's almost like a sitcom in, in terms of, you know, so when you have a very corporate client, there's all kinds of like regulations yeah. and processes and their ideas you can't sell. And then uh, at a family business, you may be very lucky talking to one family member and then another family member, maybe, you know, <laughs> so it's really the same, but it's like, anyway, it's all very interesting. It never gets boring. Uh, I have really great people I work with, uh, and I'm very happy. And I feel like I'm always discovering new people to work with who are brilliant. There's so many uh, out there. There's so many wonderful people out there to work with in uh, design and strategy and uh, code and communication. So, yeah, yeah. it's going to stay very interesting for a long time. Well, that's wonderful. After all this time, you know, that you, you get yeah. to, you still get to be engaged and and have some. Uh, yeah, some control over the kind of work that you get to do. I think that's one of the benefits. It's one of the things that you, you know, you sort of trade off the stability of the corporate job for the, you know, the feast and famine as it can be with, with freelancing or consulting. It can be. It can be. Uh, but at the exchange of the diversity and control over the kind of work that you get to focus your attention on. I think that's great. The ability to say no. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which, which is tough. It, which, which you can have in a job. I definitely, but harder. I was never able yeah, to. It's much harder. It's I was never. I never had whatever gravitas or authority or standing in the organization or whatever to just go no. So uh, this way, I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, hey, I am. Um, I should probably let you get back to your clients. So, <laughs> thank you, Jeffrey V. <laughs> thank you, Jeffrey Zelda. This was this was wonderful. Uh, it was, uh, such a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate. it. I'd love to have you on again sometime. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you up cool. again. Um, Hey, have a really good day. You too. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. <laughs>